You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Caitlin, Tristan, Towner. No Patrick today. We'll survive. No Patrick. Uh, you're all right with that, Towner? You know, I miss him. I miss the guy. He'll be back next week, hopefully, maybe. He sent me but, some talking points. But no Caitlin <laughs> next week. Let's. We have to start mourning that already. Right. Trade off the markings. Caitlin yeah. will literally be underwater, right? Either underwater or just slightly above it. <laughs> there we go. Very good. So... Caitlin, let's start with you. The House yesterday subpoenaed the the January 6th committee subpoenaed Kevin McCarthy and a number of other members of Congress to talk about January 6th, to hear from them on January 6th, about January 6th. What do you think about that? And uh, what do you think about um, what's going on in the world? Talk to us. Well, I appreciate that you started with the one thing that no one else outside of Washington and outside of the Beltway actually cares about or is talking about right now. What what they're talking about is things are really not looking good in Joe Biden's America. We The markets have been in free fall the past couple of days. Um, we have a major issue that's touching nearly every family in the country with Um, a serious shortage of formula, baby formula. We've got gas prices in most parts around here outside of the Beltway in Washington, D.C., above $5 a gallon. We've got barren store shelves. But going back again to this infant formula shortage, that's really where the real crisis is this week. We're, we're, you know, Towner, we've got several folks on this call here with, with young families and every mother that I've talked to this week is running around town very, very concerned about this shortage. And again, this is just another failure of leadership and and showing that things are not looking great in Joe Biden's America. That, I think, is what most people are talking about this week, Howard. But on the subpoena, I will let Professor French dive into the um, concerning precedent that the subpoenaing of members of the House of Representatives by other members of the House of Representatives is going to have, but I'll let him take that one. So even though you just said that nobody cares about the subpoenas, you would now want to go back to the subpoenas? No, I just want, I want to talk about how things in Joe Biden's America are really not looking good. This is the Beltway Briefing. Well, that's okay. That's fair. I think Caitlin should be given a couple more opportunities to say Joe Biden's America. That just rolls off the tongue very eloquently. Well, Mark, what are you just on that before we talk about the, yeah. the subpoenas? What, like, what do you <laughs> think about that? Does see, I'm I'm not as agile as Caitlin at changing the topic because I'm now stuck with that topic. I do look forward to Professor French on the uh, subpoenas because I understand there are some interesting institutional dimensions to it. For sure. But but I agree with everything Caitlin said, with the exception that it's a failure 
of leadership. I don't think George Washington could fix the infant formula supply chain any better than uh, Joe Biden has. But but sure, that's what people care about. It's a mess out there. And as a political matter, since this is the Beltway briefing, Democrats are going to get blamed. I, I have never seen, honestly, since college days in Vietnam, which not all of you remember, but I've never seen an electorate more angry. Everyone's mad. And the candidates who appeal to that anger are going to succeed. There are two kinds of Democrats. There are those who weren't for Biden to begin with, and there are those who are mad at Biden. That pretty much sums up our party. And everybody in the Republican Party is mad at everybody and everything. And there are some Democrats, Howard, who are actually going to successfully appeal to that anger. John Fetterman in the Senate race in Pennsylvania is the poster child for looking angry. He's got the visual down. But for the most part, when people are mad, they blame the, the incumbent. It's throw the bums out. And, and I do agree with Caitlin. That's, that's where the energy is right now. So Tristan, in, excuse me, I didn't finish. That's where the energy is right now in Joe Biden's America. There you go. Tristan, chime in. First and foremost, I think um, we have to understand that a lot's going on. And un unlike the Republican Party, you know, we don't consider Joe Biden to be a dictator. So it's not Joe Biden's America. It's actually just America, period. Just Joe Biden happens to be the leader of the free world. Um we also have to look at history. I mean, Herbert Hoover, um, Republican, uh, ran this country into a Great Depression, and it took FDR damn near 12 years um, to correct that wrong. I'm not saying that Republicans are going to allow Joe Biden to be, uh, they barely don't want him to be president for four years, let alone be eight. Uh, but it's going to take time. I think um, I, I don't count it as a failure to leadership. From Joe Biden's uh, standpoint, I count it as a failure uh, to strategy. I think that we are, we have a lot of folks in place. We're still appointing people to certain areas. There's an office in USDA that handles SNAP that doesn't have a director. Um, and a lot of folks are doing, dealing with food stamp issues right now. Um, the people, positions are empty in government. And I think that um, once we get those positions filled, I think certain things will be fixed. But this is the, this is literally what happens when people aren't at the helm, um, when people aren't in positions to help move government forward. And so I think if there's any failure of leadership in, of this of this White House is that they haven't been mm -hmm. bullish enough uh, to actually get positions filled and put people in positions and get them appointed to, to certain yeah, areas. That's to an do, excellent point. It's an excellent point. I mean, look, I've been in the position of having to get third folks through the process many, many, many times. And it's it it takes a lot of work. It takes good planning. It takes um, thorough but uh, practical vetting. And in some ways, I mean, they've set the bar so high and they have such litmus tests and can be pushed. Some of it goes back to the 50-50 Senate, by the way. Yeah. But some of it, not all these positions, most of them, in fact, they're not Senate confirmed. And they they just have a feeble 
um, an overly dogmatic selection process for their nominees and they don't have enough butts in seats. And, and I'll, 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 and the second part of that is that my, my biggest frustration that I have overall with the process is, you know, Republicans are right to be highlighting the faults of this, this administration. I, I agree wholeheartedly where I disagree and where I find a lot of, um, of, of gripe with is they seem to vote against everything that's on the floor and then legislate by Twitter. Um, not putting anything on the floor, not making suggestions. It's just we're not we're going to vote against this and not put anything on the floor because we're just going to say the Democrats are wrong. Um, I think we, we've missed regular order when it comes to working across the aisle, making suggestions, having conversations. Um, it was a, a ray of light this past week when I saw uh, the resident commissioner from Puerto Rico, who's a Republican, and Nydia Lasquez of New York, who's a Democrat, actually working in their offices on legislation to make Puerto Rico a state. Now, will it be successful? Probably not. But it's good to see that Republicans are actually and Democrats are working together to accomplish legislation. So I think if we're going to fix the problem, come to the table and have conversations about it. Don't just you know, put it on Twitter and say everybody's horrible. And, and, and Towner, I'm sure I'm, I'm very sure that I know you want to speak, but very much I'm, so. I'm, I'm very sure that um, once Kathy Barnett gets elected to the United States Senate in Pennsylvania, the ultra MAGA candidate, that she will solve all of these problems. In well, I have I have the faith that Mark Alderman will never let that happen. I'm thinking, Tristan, that I may be supporting her because I, too, suspect that the earth is flat. <laughs> and that if you walk far enough, you fall off the edge. So I'm thinking she may be my candidate. Mark, that's only when you're hallucinating. <laughs> um, <chapter. Yeah>. Psychedelics. <laughs> First of all, I don't even know where to start, Tristan, with that. I, 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 I don't I, I don't think Joe Biden's going to make it four terms, uh, you know, like FDR so he can clean up after Herbert Hoover. Uh, you forget that the collapse is currently happening 16 months into Joe Biden's term. It's not under the previous watch. The pandemic started certainly under the previous watch, but the economic and the and the Great right Depression now. and the Great Depression went three years into FDR. It's, it's we, we know. Yes, I, I, I'll take I'll give you I'll give you that one. The economic effects that you're seeing right now have a great deal to do with what happened in 2021 when Joe Biden was president and Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. I know you want Republicans to come to the table. They happen to be in the minority of both houses. And so, yes, can they work together on legislation? Absolutely. Do they have the opportunity to put something on the floor? Absolutely not, because Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have closed the entire process, which lends me, leads me right into the subpoena situation where they have effectively used every lever of majority rule that they can possibly use against the minority in this case. And then and then and then Democrats come and say, why aren't you working with us? And it's like, what what world are you living in? You just keep hammering us over and over again. Uh, in the House, in the Senate, and then say, well, why can't we work together on bipartisan legislation? And as an institutionalist, putting aside party right now, and I've talked about this on previous podcasts. I mean, I've talked to y'all whenever you listen to me about, you know, the institution as a whole, especially in the House, especially in the House. And it's and it's horrible what's happening. And I'm talking to Republicans right now, Rules Committee Republicans, on a daily basis, I'm engaging just my own personal viewpoints saying you have to a 
roll back these things and you cannot go farther. You have to stop. If Republicans win the House, you can't do in the next Congress what they have done in this Congress and you have to bring everything back. You have to bring back the minority rights that have been just thrown aside in this particular Congress. You have to bring back the motion to recommit so that the minority always has a guaranteed amendment so that they can participate in the legislative process. You Is that going to happen? I'd love for it to happen. I've been begging Republicans. We've been talking about how to do it. Yeah. I mean, these are things that minority rights have to come back. They were eroded in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They came back with the contract of America, with America. The motion to recommit was returned to the House of Representatives after Democrats had three decades of rule in the House by more than two-thirds majority in some cases, and they dismissed the motion to recommit. They dismissed Tara, a lot of minority rights. What is the motion to recommit? Because I am quite certain that everybody listening to this podcast, not to mention the four other hosts, need yeah. an explanation of the motion to recommit. Okay. So it's a, what it's the a, heck it's are a you Republican tool. It literally is a Republican tool. And the messaging another question. Connor, when you get fired up on this house rule stuff, why do you lapse into a y'all Southern accent? Well, is that is that part of the strategy? I live south of the Mason-Dixon line, so I, have, okay, you know, I went well, to college in North Carolina. I picked up a y'all, and I've never. I been can't believe I opened the door to do. And I, my, to, uh, I withdraw the question. <laughs> I withdraw the question. No, so all right, motion to recommit is the last motion on a piece of legislation before it goes to final passage, and through. The 90s, the late 90s, it started back with contract with, with America and when Newt Gingrich reinstated it post-96. Through the last two decades, the minority has always been given the right at one chance at amending. It could be a closed process, no amendments from either party. You're just taking up a bill on the House floor, and yet still the minority has the right to offer one amendment at the end of the process. And usually it's voted down on a party line. Typically it's voted down on a party line, but sometimes it's not because it's a good idea or you know whatever else. And so uh, what happened at the beginning of this Congress, for example, was that Democrats in the House decided to get rid of the motion to recommit because they lost a few of those votes. And they said, well, we can't have this anymore. We can't have our members thinking independently and voting on Republican ideas. So we, we have to get rid of it. So they got rid of it. And that is that is emblematic of what has happened in the House of Representatives specifically. I'm not referring necessarily to the Senate. The Senate's got its own problems with the 50-50 makeup. Uh, it's hard enough for, for senators to get along uh, in a 50-50 Senate with the vice president breaking the tie. But I can tell you in the House, and, I, and this is not a Republican-centric viewpoint. I mean, there was actually a, an article on it this morning uh, in Punchbowl News, and the, those folks uh, tend to look at Congress specifically um, from inside the Beltway analysis. This is, you know, Pelosi has taken the majority rule to an extreme this Congress, in part because of January 6th, certainly, but also on a legislative side, not dealing with January 6th, she has flexed a lot of procedural muscle. And I'm just hoping the subpoenas being the newest thing in that chain of events, I'm hoping and praying, I'm talking to Republicans constantly saying, don't do this. Don't go down this rabbit hole because we will lose the institution that is the House that works on a majority. If you have 218 votes in the House, 
you can do whatever you want to do. You can shut down the entire process. You could never let a member of the minority party speak on anything or offer any idea to anything. And you can, you have that authority with 218 votes. But through the history of the United States, only in the rarest times has it actually happened. And when you walk this close to the edge where you're saying the minority shall have no input in the House of Representatives, you have to start walking that back. Okay. Howard, can I just follow up on, on that for a quick second? So uh, help us understand procedurally how how this happens. It, yeah. In the Senate, when a new Senate is sworn in, there has to be an organizing resolution that the majority leader and minority leader actually agree to. Yeah. Am I understanding that in the House, it's the majority that sets the rules? That's correct. So, so on January 3rd, which is the, the first day of the new Congress, uh, the House will will meet. The clerk will start to open the House of Representatives. There'll immediately be nominations and a vote for the Speaker of the House. Then there'll be some officers that are sworn in after that. And then the House votes on the rules package for the new Congress. And so normally you assume that all of the rules or most of the rules from the previous Congress are, are adopted with a series of changes uh, that that may reflect, uh, you know, viewpoints of the of the majority party. Uh, so, you know, we saw this a lot with the pay-go rules or the cut-go rules, uh, meaning, you know, how do we offset legislation? Is a is a tax increase qualify as an offset or not? You know, and there's there's things that come and go over the years, but there's a lot of actual thoughtful discussion that happens in the incoming or existing continuing majority party at the end of every Congress about rules changes. And some of that's totally benign. Some of that deals with the process. How do we process pieces of legislation? How are those printed? How are those searchable? Things along those lines. But some of them have to actually do with minority rights. And how is the minority able to offer amendments? How are they able to register protests throughout the process? How many times can they call for a motion to adjourn if they don't like what they see, for example? And so what is what you try to be conscious of through the process is the ability for the minority to have their voice heard. They may not win, but they have to have their voice heard. And what we've seen, and, and I would say Republicans have rolled back some of these things too, certainly over the years, but the last year and a half have been remarkable in the amount of rollbacks of minority rights for Republicans. We have to come back from this. And we both parties have to step back from this precipice because we're quickly entering a situation where, I, I mean, I saw seven quotes this morning from members of both sides of the aisle in the House that said, we are doing some serious damage to the institution right now. And that's a problem. I mean, this is a trend, not just in politics, but in our society. Yeah. I mean, the erosion of trust in institutions, everything from the House of Representatives to your synagogue and church. Yeah. It's like, um, and it's, it's, I don't want to hear your opinion. It, you know, I don't, you may not agree with an opinion, but, but what's happening right now is the, I don't want to even be bothered to hear your opinion. And, and why do you think that these subpoenas are such a bad thing? I mean, I understand it's one party. It's a committee dominated by one party yeah. saying thou shalt come and tell the truth about what the president of the United States said to you when the Capitol was being stormed, but 
if those members have information that's relevant to what happened that day, why should they not be called to account? Why should Congress, why should members of Congress get a free pass when it comes to their conduct? If members of Congress were fanning the flames on January 6th, why should they not be held accountable? They, they absolutely should be held accountable. There's no doubt about that. There are already institutions to hold them accountable. There is the equally split ethics committee, the equally split between Republicans and Democrats. Subpoenas against members of Congress have been issued out of the ethics committee over the course of the ethics committee's history. And those have been, uh, you know, litigated, if you will, over time. The DOJ certainly has there are about 500 individuals of the DOJ that watch everything that Congress does on a daily basis and can't wait to file some sort of subpoena, uh, search warrant, you name it, against any member of Congress. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on as quickly as they possibly can. There are institutions that exist. And so what we've seen through the January 6th committee, whether you agree with it or not, I tend to actually agree with the January 6th committee. I'd like to get in there, I think. But the problem is you have one party issuing subpoenas against another party's membership and it's not coming from a from either the agency that is in charge of this the department of justice or the ethics committee which is the institutional entity yeah. that is equally split that was set for this purpose that's fair i mean well, even is, is, isn't there even some question about the legal enforceability of like we assume that some of these folks probably aren't going to show and, and then what? And there's no real mechanism, right, Towner? Well, uh, yeah, it, it puts Biden, it puts Merrick Garland, the attorney general, in a terrible position as well. What are you going to do? Are you going to go take, you know, Steve Bannon's going to going to court in July on his contempt resolution that was passed right. by the House because he he's not a member him. of the House of Representatives. Exactly. So what are you going to do if you're Biden and this lands on your on your on your attorney general's desk? Are you going to take Kevin McCarthy to court with actual legal consequences if he does, chooses not to comply with the subpoena? I mean, the McCarthy yeah. November election. The McCarthy thing is all about Trump and about leverage vis-a-vis -vis the other members. Yeah, but the it, problem is there's no allegation of wrongful activity on any of those five members. They just want information about what the calls contain. They're not saying that McCarthy or any of the other four members who I'm not overwhelming fans of, Mo Brooks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're not, uh, there's no allegation that I've ever seen or heard uh, that they have done anything. I mean, there's certainly, you know, folks who do allege that, but there's no allegation from the committee, from the January 6th committee of impropriety. They want information on Donald Trump which is a totally different scenario than if they think Kevin McCarthy, you know, helped helped insurrectionists into the Capitol on on January 6th. Which Tristan, are the Democrats taking this too far? I think at this point they 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 set themselves up for a situation where they have to follow this through. Um, and I think for for the base to come out and, and they, they're continuing to do something that they promised they would do at the beginning of, of, of the Congress. But the, the deeper issue here is that uh, Democrats have always legislated out of emotion. Um, you know, they've already, they've always wanted to, you know, turn the elephant, pun intended, um, and so and on all angles and, and be able to accomplish everything. Whereas Republicans have always legislated out of policy and they've already always, you know, followed the rules 
up until Trump. Um, and, and, it, and it was up until Trump. Um, but for, I think for now is that they they have gone too far, but they have to because they have to uphold the promise that they made at the beginning of the Congress is to get to the bottom of this. And the problem is that there are members of Congress, starting with Lee McCarthy, who don't want to get to the bottom of it at, at the end of the day. He doesn't care. All he cares about is being speaker. And I think, and I, at the end of the day, he's, he wants to get through November. He wants the Trump era to be gone. Republicans want to just see this out the door, turn a chapter and move on. And I can respect them for that. If they just say that they go back and forth all the time about, yes, we want to get to the bottom of it. Yes, we want law and order. Yes, we want rule. Yes, we want to make sure we hold people accountable. Criminal justice is our banner that we carry, but it doesn't apply to us. We only mean that when it means everybody else, not us. And at the end of the day, they had to subpoena them and they had to bring them forward. They shouldn't have had to do that because as colleagues, they should be willing to come in and talk to their colleagues and say, let's figure this out together. But Republicans don't want to do that. They want to get past this. Yeah. I mean, the fundamental problem here is that this is an institution with 250 years of precedent. And you know, we're, we're quickly approaching a situation where, you know, as much as I'm yelling at, at the Republicans to not continue through, I don't know how they don't continue. How do they not issue a subpoena for for Nancy Pelosi, you know, on January 3rd? How do they how do they not kick Great. Adam Schiff and a bunch of other Democrats off of their committees as as has happened to Republican members? You might not have to worry about Nancy Pelosi past January. Oh, they can still issue a subpoena. I don't I don't care who she is or where she is. They she just she just had she just has to find Donald Trump's lawyer and avoid them. It's easy. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 just I mean, it's it's a constant eroding. And um, and and, you know, I, it's going to be hard for Republicans just based on political yeah. basis to walk back from doing anything that Democrats did this Congress. I mean, it's just a one-upsmanship that continues and Republicans are not immune to it and Democrats are not immune to it, but the institution is is in pain because of it. So, Mark, we've got, it's hard, I'm trying to reconcile all this in my head. Like we're, we're talking about COVID and baby formula and war and, Abortion policy, like we've been all the stuff we've been talking about. Now we're talking about institutional norms and preservation of democracy as we know it. Like I'm just trying to fit it all together. It's 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 yeah, I, I, I wish I had a unifying principle for you. I'll I'll work on that over the weekend and, and get back to you. It, it is very hard to make it all of a piece. It, it, there is so much. Uh, I come back to where I began when we were talking about infant formula. The the theme that runs through it all is is alienation and anger. We we are misaligned at the moment as a country. Our institutions are not. Uh, are not aligned with what a majority of the country want to see done. And, and this hour goes to something that, that we've talked about often on this podcast. You and I have talked about a lot otherwise. I, I actually still believe that a majority of the country is somewhere in the middle and that if everybody had to turn out to vote, you would have a different political environment. I think 
uh, I, I've said this before, I think here, I know I've said it elsewhere. Uh, I My unifying uh, cure is the Australian system of uh, no government benefits for anybody who doesn't vote, period. No driver's license, no nothing. Yeah. Because it, because if a majority of the country is still in the middle and doesn't want the the division that we have been discussing here today and every every Friday, then a majority of the country's got to turn out to vote. And, and Caitlin, why? I mean, I get that the president owns whatever's going on under the president's watch at the time it's going on. By the way, I think very much both parties own where we are economically as a cause. I mean, Biden owns it as a political matter because he's currently president. I think we've been through an extraordinary era of easy money. And that's why we've got that's a big part of the reason, not the whole reason, but a big part of the reason why inflation is what it is. It's, did that begin with the TARP program? If I remember no, correctly. it didn't actually, because <laughs> it got a return was, on investment there, Mark. We got a return on investment and that was that's right. Um, but it but it actually in all seriousness, it did begin with Fed policy around that time, quantitative easing. And um, there's just been too much money sloshing around in the system. But it it just it feels like, Caitlin, like Republicans just reflexively like they haven't even given Biden a chance. It's like Biden's been vilified from day day one. And I don't think the whole let's go Brandon thing. And by the way, slight digression. We were at a uh, Jake's, one of Jake's little league games. And all of a sudden the other team starts chanting, let's go Brandon. And it took me a minute to realize that, no, there was actually a kid named Brandon, on the, Brandon other team on the team that they were cheering for. And that's when I knew like, I, my world is just like, so warped, but like why the vilification just is out of control. I mean, Joe Biden is a decent, honorable human being. Like he's not a bad guy. He's well, I, Howard, I disagree with you on the vilification. When you can draw a direct line to the president's policies and where we are today, whether it was the canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline on day one, two, or three in office, and now we've got gas prices above $5 a gallon. Yes, Putin played a role, Russia and Ukraine played a role, but they were sky high before Ukraine invaded Russia. Or, sorry, Russia invaded, late Friday afternoon, Russia invaded Ukraine. But you can draw direct, it's, I don't see it as a, a, as a demonization. And if anything, look, I'm not being reflexively defensive of the last guy, but there was a over demonization of him at the beginning of his term. A lot of Americans are frustrated before COVID. He actually is the demon. So anyway, before COVID, the economy was good. People were feeling good about their 401ks. They were paying lower taxes than they historically had in a, in a very long time. There was economic prosperity. Businesses were being started. Yes, the pandemic contributed to some of this, but all you have to do is go back, listen to a, a White House press briefing daily where they're talking about the policies they're focused 
on things that most mainstream Americans who just want to be left alone, want to feed their families, grow their business, you know, buy maybe a second home somewhere, not be forced to buy an electric vehicle or be taxed up the wazoo because they have a car that relies on gasoline. I mean, it's it's crazy how I don't think it's a demonization of Joe Biden more as a direct line to his policies and some of the tone deafness that we see out of that White House. Caitlin, Ford has 150,000 orders for the F-150 Lightning. Don't tell me middle America doesn't want electric vehicles. That's great. Try to haul try to haul a boat on a yeah. boat trailer on an electric vehicle. I mean, I have yet to see that work well, but maybe maybe they're working on it. We'll see. I think so, it's a- I think I, I think uh, I think we as a country have been we started to be more divided when the conversation of the 2016 campaign and even to a certain extent the 2020 campaign on one side, you heard the motto of take our country back. And I still cannot figure out for the life of me who stole it in the first place. I wish one Republican would please tell me who you were trying to take your country back from, because clearly it had to be the Democrats or it had to be the liberal side. But I, I think once you put into the grains of voters that now you are against the other person who's not voting for the same person as you, you have a huge division. I think that has just kind of boiled over into the politics that we have now. And I, I unfortunately, and I hate to say this, absent civil war again, I don't see how we get out of this. We are, we are just split down the middle um, of every bit of electoral politics and it's getting worse in the states, it's getting worse in the Senate, it's getting worse in the House, it's getting worse as the popular vote. I don't see how we get back to the form of, as, as Town and I know, regular order and just coming coming to, to the table, having a conversation and legislating without people having you know issues. And that's on both sides, Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. For, for me, it gets back to, and I started being cognizant of it in like 2000, 2002 midterms especially. Um, that the campaigns never stop, that we're, we're running campaigns 24-7 through the off years. Um, you know, super PACs are, are doing spends uh, through the off years constantly. Uh, fundraising, you know, my wife is a fundraiser, a political fundraiser, and it used to be that the off year, you know, her income was way down because you didn't raise a heck of a lot of money in the off year, especially in the, the first quarter after an election in November, that January through March period of the off year. You, I used to, when I was working for a member of Congress, we didn't even fundraise in that quarter because we wanted to give our donors some time off, you know, to, to, to relax and not hear from us. Now it's constant. The campaign cycle is constant, and that is fed into the higher, uh, you know, effort from a digital media standpoint, where you're seeing it constantly all the time. Even if you're not seeing a ca- an ad for a candidate, you're seeing an ad on a cause, on an issue, constantly from both sides of the aisle, and you know you can't get away from it. There's no. There's no time for members of Congress to do policy and be in a bubble and not have to be affected. You know, they're constantly on Twitter. They're constantly seeing ads. They're hearing from from, you know, campaigns going on back home. Well, I would just say, notwithstanding all of this, Mark, there's still a tremendous amount, literally each and every day that happens in Washington and this in this town. And 
some of it happens on Capitol Hill. A lot of it happens in the agencies of the executive branch, far more. And and this is why this is why we exist. It's it's you gotta separate the signal from the noise, and you can't lose sight of the need, the fact that things are going on, and and that it's 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 messy, and and that's you know it's it's big part of what we do is help clients navigate through. Howard, that, two so. things I want to say to bring us out of the dark here, and in, in, yeah. in your point about Congress working, one is we had an overwhelming House passage of a $40 billion Ukraine aid bill this week. Um, slowed down a little bit in the Senate, but we expect that that's going to pass early next week. Well, it, it slowed down in the Senate because of those pesky minority rights. Only Rand Paul, we're not blaming the whole Republican Party for that. But um, but that and we started this week kickoff for the conference committee negotiations on a major piece of legislation focused on U.S. competitiveness against China. That's, that's the point. So, well, it's fun to maybe that's not well, the best adjective, but it's fun to come on this podcast and try to make sense of the world and kick it around. It's like actually stuff is still happening. Yeah. And. Um, the the ugliness makes it all the more important to, um, you know, have a guide. Relationships are important. I think that what 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 clients have to understand is that it's the long game. It's never the short game. We 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 hear the noise every single day, and you know, political tides are going to change. It's investing in the relationships with members and the agencies and the and, and those who are in power, so that they know who you are. They know what you're doing. You know, the tea leaves are going to change at some point. And you don't want to be trying to be like a dog trying to catch a frisbee, but you want to just be consistent. And that's where we come in to build. Those. We already have those relationships already, but helping clients build them, keep them and maintain them. Um, because, again, that's where things get done. Not today, not tomorrow, as frustrated as we might get. But it's, it's literally down the road um, that things make the difference. Mark, last word. You get the last word today, Mark. Dangerous. I just but... want to uh, end by agreeing again with Caitlin. Uh, I think that the China bill conference process is among the most encouraging things I've seen in uh, a lot of years of working with Congress. It is not only a bipartisan effort. You have a bipartisan bill in each chamber. This isn't about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about House versus Senate. And you have a great number of conferees meeting and trying to work out what may actually be the, the single most important legislative priority for this country right now, which is our relationship with China. And, and as the cherry on top, it is all being uh, live streamed. You can sit and watch all of this happening. That's encouraging. That is encouraging. And provided safe banking remains in the final bill, Caitlin, in a great example of democracy and Cozen O'Connor public strategies. Yeah. Well, tear, you down, tear you down and build you back up in the same podcast. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, spirited as always, and we will be back next week. Thanks all. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. 
please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.